0: Sermons taken from 1 Peter, 2nd chapter, 1 through 3. So put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation. If indeed you have tasted, that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, fam, we're, we're continuing our, our walk through uh, First Peter uh, and what it means to be a resident alien, what it means to live this Christian life uh, here on the earth. And we've, we've walked through very specific hallmarks of the Christian life of a resident alien. Essentially, what does a believer in Jesus look like? What are the things that mark them? If you were to describe one, and, and, and let's, let's not fool ourselves, church, right? Let's not fool ourselves. Uh, if you were to ask people what the marks of a Christ-following Christian was in our, in our world today, in our culture, in our city, in our country today, you would get a large range of answers, and a lot of them would not be ideal, right? And it'd be difficult because you'd also know that they're not really unfair either. And so as we walk, I, I love this, um, we... Jesus says, I I didn't come to abolish the law, but rather to fulfill it. And so what he meant was that the way that I'm living life is showing you what God meant when he gave all of those rules, right? When when he said, love God and love your neighbor as yourself, like Jesus didn't just tell us that he he demonstrated it, right? He, He says things like, there's no greater love than this, that that somebody lay down his life for his friends. And what does Jesus do? Ultimately, he lays down his life. He gives his life for his friends. Jesus doesn't just give us more law. Jesus shows us what it looks like to walk after the heart of God, after the heart of the law. Because as we all know, um, it's easy enough to keep a law without actually having concern for the heart of the law. Right? Right? And so Jesus comes and he he demonstrates for us what the the law, uh, what it looks like. And and as we follow him, one thing that's interesting about the law that that begins to change is you see certain things like, take for example this, this of the Ten Commandments. Um, Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Right? Now, there's, there's an action form, there's an action way to to, to, uh, think about that and to talk about that. In some ways, I would call it like the legalist standpoint, but I don't want to be that harsh because I'm not trying to like knock on anybody, but this is kind of the action, the exterior way that we talk about and think about that law, right? So uh, do not take the name of the Lord in vain means uh, we're not going to just say, oh my God, right? In vain. We're not going to say that or, or uh, we're not going to say like GD or, or curse, right? So growing up, that's how it was uh, relayed to me, was that we don't just casually say the Lord's name. And that is true, right? Like God is very concerned with the the glory of his name, because when you read the Old Testament, uh, the Psalms, when you read and hear God talking, God doesn't seem to try to differentiate between his nature, his name, him self, like like God cares deeply about the glory of his name, He cares deeply about his reputation among the nations. Consider this that he was angry with his people because they were f- because we're frustrating people, I am like we're frustrating people, and, and they don't have faith, they've seen him rescue them out of slavery in Egypt, and yet they, they've seen. Bread fall from heaven. They don't have faith. Moses goes up to get these commandments, comes down. God's ready to just wow out on them. And Moses talks God off the cliff by this, right? And, and I, I know some of you are in here because like, of the Reformed tradition that, that our, our networks seem to follow. And so that very statement, like God, Moses talked God down, but that's literally what the Bible says. Like it, Moses says, God, if you do this, Then all of the people are going to see this, and they're going to say, oh, well, their God isn't merciful. And God says, no, the way that people know me, my name, my name, the the value of my name, my rep, is that I have mercy on those whom I have mercy and compassion, on those whom I have compassion. And so the Bible says that God relented of the thing that he was about to do. Right, So we pray, y'all, and, and, and a lot of us, some of us come to prayer as people who are already fatalists. Like what's going to happen is going to happen, but we pray because it's this weird thing that Christians do. But y'all, like over and over again in the Bible, God is, is, is moved by the prayers of His people. And so there's this, there's this tension... That seems like tension to us because we see things uh, sort of in two dimensions when God sees them in three. There's this tension of God's sovereignty and, and our pleading or our action or our behavior, right? And there's no, that tension just exists in the Bible. God is sovereign over all things and yet He hears our prayers and moves. God cares for the poor and the broken, and he could, but and yet he chooses to use his church. I'm getting way ahead of myself, but but we're gonna be here anyway. He chooses to use his church. Right? He chooses to move through people. And so we we pray, but anyway, getting back to where I was actually on, right? God cares about his name. And so, yeah, that's, that's a right way to look at that. But now in Jesus, what we begin to recognize, and do you realize this, if you call yourself Christian, you actually, like even, even the word Christian, which was given to us, little Christ, it bears the name, Christ. We actually bear, like we bear the name of Jesus. And this is very true in our culture. I've had, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had whether it was when I was working at Starbucks uh, in seminary, working with primarily uh, atheists and, and agnostic folks who grew up in the church and just had enough. Right? When I talked, their association of Jesus was Christians. And you could say, well, that's unfair, but that's what it is. Right? People know of Jesus what his church shows them which means that you can as a Christian take the Lord's name in vain without even saying a word by the way you fail to love, by the way you fail to serve, by your arrogance, by your self-righteousness, by your hypocrisy, you can take the name of Jesus in vain. And so here's this new vein of the law that we see where where it's even harder. <laughs> it's harder. Like I can simply not say a, I cannot say a word. I'm a grown man. Right? but to actually live everyday life saying that I'm, I'm reflecting who Jesus is to this person, right? Like, listen to me, church, right? Your, your unbelieving homosexual friend, what they know about Jesus is through you, through your words, right? What unbelieving what and even believing, listen, like, I'm, I'm a black man in evangelicalism. And a lot of what I know about evangelicalism comes from the words and the actions and the lack of actions of my white brothers and sisters. You bear the name of Jesus, right? So, th- so this is how we work through. We walk through this. We, we, we see this. And so, we bear the name Jesus, which means that there's a way that we ought to live. And Peter is guiding his people. As you resident aliens, elect exiles of the dispersion, he says, you people who bear the name of Jesus, Christ followers, what are the marks that you ought to have? When somebody looks at a, a, a maturing, which, a, a believer in our culture, what ought they note? And so what Peter says is the first thing they ought to know is that this person, you, we, have a living hope. Because we have a living king. We have a living hope. Therefore, in the midst of brokenness, we, we don't despair. We don't grow faint of heart. We don't grow weary in doing good because our hope is active and alive. And that living hope, so we ought to be known for that, uh, that living hope ought to lead to holiness, godliness, the way we conduct ourselves. We ought to live holy lives. And that's not that's not problematic to say that's just true. How you conduct yourself says a lot about who Jesus is to, the, to, to everyone. And that holiness then manifests itself in the third mark, which is love. The church should be known for love. How many times does Jesus say, you will be known, they'll know your mind by your love. Love, love your God, love your neighbor, even love your enemy. Right? And, and man, I, that was last week. And last week should have been a few sermons probably. But we're moving on. Right? So love. And here's the thing. When you have that living hope that manifests itself in holiness, which is, is shown through your deep, powerful love. Like just category shattering. Cannot make sense of it love, you begin to grow into this this next mark, which is maturity. Christians, we ought to be mature. The goal, time and time again, this is Peter talking, but if you listen to all of Paul's letters, if you listen to what he's saying to the church or to the pastors, he's saying you need to grow these people up into maturity. They should be more mature than this. We've got the rich Christians sitting over here getting drunk off the communion wine. We've got the poor Christians over here don't even have any wine with which to remember the work of Jesus. Y'all are immature. When I was a child, I acted like a child. But now that I'm a man, I put my man pants on. Right? Like I I put my grown man on is what Paul says. And y'all need to do it too. Maturity, listen to what he says here. Listen to what Peter says. So put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn children and newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. By that, By it, you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now think about that middle command. He says, long for the pure spiritual milk. And when we think about milk, think, think for a second. Um, the Bible primarily uses masculine pronouns to describe God. That, that's just, that's just an, like, that's incontrovertible. It talks about God as Father. He, he, he all the time. And yet, over and over again, if you're sensitive to it, if you're aware, you see these pulses of the feminine, of, of God with descriptors that belong to mothers being attributed to God. This is one of those times. Think about, think, women, y'all are amazing. And, and I just need a, I need a moment to say that because I'm married. My wife has given birth three times and there are women out there who have like doubled that, tripled that. I don't even get it, but three times. And now just consider this, fam- just for a moment, especially men, right? Because we don't live with like the awareness of this in our daily lives. But you realize that the female body houses, in- in- incubates, a human, like a person, right? And everything that that growing baby in the womb needs, the mother's body supplies. And then the mother actually like brings this child into the earth and everything the child needs as far as nutrients are concerned, the mom has like women bring life into the earth and they sustain life for the first, like this is phenomenal, right? And if they're, and, and so I can talk about rhetoric without getting into the political concerns, right? Can I do that? Can we just, can we just do that? Talk about rhetoric without it having to be um, an endorsement or a non-endorsement? Can we just talk about rhetoric for a second? When you look at what a woman does, just even in that, and that is not the sum total of being woman, right? But even in that, you cannot say that there is anything that a man does that rivals the godlikeness of that. Bringing and sustaining life. Like that's Genesis 1 type stuff right there, Genesis 2. And I'm not saying like, oh, women are here and men are here. But we have to understand that when God said that women were created after his image in the same manner and with the same language that he said men were. Like any affront, any rhetoric, any action that is an affront on a woman or on women in general is an affront on the very person and character and nature and honor of God. Which means you don't need, men, hear me, please, Christian men, especially, like if you're here, you're a Christian, you're a man, please hear me. You don't need a relationship to a woman for that woman to have any sort of value before God, right? Like her being person, being image of God is enough that she doesn't have to be somebody's mother, sister, sister auntie, grandma, like you don't have to, oh, she could be my best friend. Maybe she could, but even if she couldn't, that wouldn't matter because she bears the image of God. She is human. Therefore, any affront, any language, any assault on woman is an affront and an assault on God himself. Do you hear me? And we, I don't, I don't care. I do not care. We cannot in any way have been found to be supportive or dismissing of language and action that degrades, dehumanizes women. And note, I did not say our women. (laughs) Women. Right? We it has to be said, it has to be said over and over again, right? We bear the name of Jesus. Trust me when I say Jesus would not have been like, oh, no, it's cool because dot, dot, dot. Trust me, right? But anyway, so we're, we're looking at this and we're seeing what a woman does. And, and in this case, what a mother does, a very specific role. And so it says like a newborn infant long for the pure spiritual milk. And what happens, it's, it's really interesting. And I'm not about like debates about what you do and don't use but what happens when when a, a newborn infant is nursing like you realize all the nutrients that they need are given to them and they're filtered through just the amazing like the the woman right like anything you eat anything she eats like the nutrients are filtered through and given to them first before her right any sickness that she might get The sickness doesn't pass through, but the antibodies do. And what Paul is saying is we, church, we need to be like newborn infants longing for pure spiritual milk, longing for mother's milk from God. And here's what happens when a mom nurses their children, they grow. They grow, and they mature. Their body matures. Their body grows. Their body transforms. Eventually, they're weaned off of the milk. Paul talks about, y'all are still on milk with some of the churches, but y'all should be eating steak. Y'all should be eating, right? That's what milk does. Milk matures. So the point, the goal is not simply to drink spiritual milk so that you can drink, right? You're not supposed to be a 32-year-old person. Drinking breast milk. Likewise, as a Christian, we're supposed to grow into maturity. The goal is not milk. He doesn't say, hey, listen, y'all, drink spiritual milk as newborn children. He doesn't stop there. He says that by it you may grow up into salvation, right? So now having grown up in fundamentalist and, and independent Baptist uh, cultures at times, that phrase is very interesting You grow up into salvation, right? Because I was taught that after you prayed this prayer, you just were saved. And so what we need to understand is that in Jesus, there is this progressive salvation that is happening. You were saved, right? When you believed, the work of Jesus was effective in you. You were marked by, claimed by God. The Spirit of God is in you. You were saved. And at the same time, this is Romans 6 and 7 type stuff, you are being saved, God is working out that salvation in you. What that means is that God is working out all those tendencies that turn you inward and make you selfish and focus you on yourself. He is slowly and painfully turning them out. This is growing into maturity, and you will be saved. One day there will come a point where in in glory, (laughs) you will interact perfectly with other people. And I say that because... As we move into this, Peter describes maturity in relation to other people, right? So here it is. Peter's saying, all right, have a living hope that draws you into holiness, causes you to love deeply, that love is leading you into maturity. You cannot be mature without loving. Do you hear that? Because maturity is a relational understanding. Let me show that to you um, both in the example that we gave earlier, like in human form, but then also like in life stage form. Uh. If you have children or you've been around children, um, it doesn't help. So only child, it doesn't help me as much to think about when I was a kid because I didn't really see it around me. Um, But... If you have children or you're around children, you know um, you real like you see that when a when a child is born, the whole world revolves around their needs, and nobody in sound mind chastises the infant for that. Right? I I have an infant. This infant will die without the mom. Yes, the dad, but the mom. And so the infant is hungry. And all the infant knows how to do is to cry. And what the infant wants the mother for is food in that moment. Or just security. Or sleep. They need, they see everything, they cannot but understand everything in terms of their needs and themselves. And no good mother or father or human being is like, you stupid infant. (laughs) Why are you crying? Why is it always about you, baby? Like, we may feel that way, but we recognize, like, I'm not shaking this baby because they want to eat again. They are an infant. Now, fast forward, like, let's say four years. Five years. Not even a year. Right? Slowly, what are you starting to try and do? What are you hoping to see? No longer does this toddler see the world as though everything revolves around them and their needs and their wants, right? You're starting to teach them to share. You're starting to teach them to wait. I know you're hungry. I, know I got it after the second time you told me, and it sunk in a little bit after the 40th. I know you're hungry, but the world does not revolve around you. And so we still understand certain things, right? Like a, a child that's potty training. We understand when they're like, no, I need to go. You need to stop what you're doing, right? I don't want to clean that up. So uh, this is just a mutual benefit thing. But we understand, so we expect that of a children, right? That's why like if a child cuts an adult off or something, they're walking and like the adult may be frustrated, but there's not, they're not going to like push the child and be like, what are you thinking, right? Because children still were working through it. What? What about a teenager, though? Man, and this is what, I'm ter- fam, we're close. <laughs> and I'm, I'm more than I, even, especially as a youth, former youth pastor. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm more than anxious about this, right? but you get more upset with teenagers, right? Why? Because they're aware of themselves and their space and they ought to be at least. Like maybe they're not, but they ought to be. You ought to be able to talk through your problems, right? A baby cries, but when but when a 5-year-old or our our 6-year-old child cries like a we're like, "Son, you're 6." Milo cries like that because he's he's a toddler. He's he's 3. You know, like you don't need to do that anymore, right? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, the world doesn't revolve around you. You can have, That's maturity. Maturity is, the, I, I would say, in, in humans, and it plays itself out with sociologically, relationally, emotionally, physically. Maturity is understanding that it's the progressive understanding that this is not about you. So it's immature to think because I want something, even though that person doesn't consent to give it to me that I can just take it. Not only is that illegal, that's actually childish. It's immature to think that I can just snatch what I want because it's not about you. Right? And so listen to this. Listen to all these things. uh, Peter comes into the church and he says, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Now what is connecting about all of those things? Right? Two things. They're interpersonal. And when you do them, you are being self centered. You're the focus, right? Malice, like anger. Malice says that I'm the center of the universe. This person hasn't acknowledged it. Therefore, I am angry at them to the point of violence. Deceit. I'm the center of the universe. The truth is going to compromise that in that person's mind. Therefore, I'm going to lie to them. Hypocrisy. I'm the center of the universe. Therefore, I'm going to judge them by their worst mistakes and me by my best intentions. How often do we do that? Hypocris, envy. I'm the center of the universe. Therefore, that thing that that person has, I have right to over them. Therefore, I will be, it will bear on me. I will be envious of what I ought to have but do not have. Why? Because I'm the center of the universe. Now, in your mind, you're not thinking that, but guess what? That's what it's reflecting and slander. I'm the center of the universe, therefore I can say whatever I want. Right? And so, Peter says, this is great, like, we're actually right on time, this never happens. Um, (laughs) Peter says that maturity is the process of putting off all of those things and not just those things individually but the heart condition that undergirds them and if you'll note it's a product of love holiness and hope which means that the goal of every christian and therefore, every church is the maturity of the believers in them. mature like my, my goal is to be more mature in Christ. right It means I'll love more, It means I'll be less selfish. It means I'll be more compassionate. It means that I'll burn for justice more, burn for. Uh, rage against oppression more, right? All of these things are ultimately selfless things. They're ultimately loving things. My goal is maturity. That means the church, if we say our goal is to magnify Jesus by making disciples who apply the gospel to every facet of life, which we do every week, what that means is our goal is to make mature Christians. That's why the church exists. And now you're thinking, well, what about this? Well, I would would argue that whatever else you're thinking about that you would have said that the church exists for would be accomplished if Christians were more mature. Because some of you have a very evangelistic zeal. Well, listen, mature Christians share their hope. Some of you have a a heart and a zeal for justice, right? Mature Christians can't sit by in the face of injustice. And so what needs to happen is they need to grow up a little bit and get in the mix, right? All of those things that you're thinking about, maturity speaks to. And so what I want to spend the last little bit of time that we have together is talking about how we as a church, like we're going to get back into this vision thing. How we as a church pursue maturity. And it's, a, it's something that you've heard before, but to put it, to put it simply... We believe as a church that a a Christian who is maturing, a disciple who is maturing, is shaped by the word in the context of family while on mission. Let me say it again for the people in the back, right? Shaped by the word in the context of family while on mission. right? Part one, shaped by the word. Right? We we believe first of all, in this room I know that varying people believe varying things about the Bible. Right? There are passages in the Bible that I know that if we sat, I could pick the six people too, right? If we all sat down and just what does this passage mean? Like we're gonna get maybe even six different responses. But one thing that we believe about the Bible as a church is that when read rightly it acts as a mirror reflecting ourselves as we are so that we might be changed by the holy spirit when i come to the word over and over again man i'm 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 astonished hopefully, like, oh man, like the Lord has really been moving in my life. I, I look at the word, I see where David rejoices and my heart wells up. It didn't used to well up when I thought about this, but now it does. And, and that's joy, like the, the word has shaped me. There's a reflection of the work that God is doing. And then also there are times when I read the word, it's like, why is that a problem? Like, like I just realized my selfishness. It's like, man, I'm... I, I don't even have time to go into it, but I, I would make this my confessional, y'all. You know, but I, I read the Word, and I read, I read about uh, about hope, particularly in Hebrews. Uh, I think it's chapter two. And the author of Hebrews says that um, that what Christ did, Christ rose from the dead in order to liberate us from the fear of death, because of which many of us walk around in lifelong bondage. And I look at that, and I recognize in myself a very acute fear of death. And it's not like, who's going to care for my kids? It's not like a, I love these people, fear of death. Like, this is a very, like, at some point, I'm just not going to be alive. Right, And then at 2 in the morning, I'm like, I've been thinking about this for three and a half hours. Just obsessing over the fear of death. And fear of death, and then how does it manifest itself in my life? We'll just just give one example, right? Um, If it's 7.30 at night and you're thinking about that, you're obsessed with it, all you want to do, and I promise you this, is like kill that thought. And man, there are a lot of ways to kill those thoughts that are counter- Productive and counterintuitive to godliness. Right? Like, I've found myself in situations where I look at, hold the scripture up and say, Man, I've been drinking. Right? Drinking's not a sin, alcohol, like abusing alcohol is, right? And I've been drinking to the point of this. Why? Because I'm trying to silence that. Right? I found myself in that place. I hold the word up and I'm, I see that, right? And mature people are aware of their mortality but not paralyzed by it. And so the the word is is shaping me, maturing me, freeing me of that paralysis, freeing me of those crutches that I was using to confront this one fact that death comes to us All, but death is not the end because of the resurrected King. Shaped by the Word. So, family, we preach the Word. When we gather, we reflect on the Word. It may not always be through Bible study, but we want our hearts to be saturated with the love of the Gospel, the, the love of God as, as taught to us in the Word, and so we're shaped by the Word. It's also a confession that the Word of God doesn't return to him void, which means when we preach the Gospel to one another, right? we believe that we preach the Gospel to Christians, as well as people who aren't Christians, when we preach the gospel to one another, it is working out in our self-maturity. Secondly, shaped by, the, or shaped by the Word in the context of family. And the context of family is huge. And I'll just say it this way. If it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a church to raise a Christian. The Bible knows nothing of an isolated Christian. Now, that's not to say you can't be a Christian and isolate yourself from family. And that's not to say that I don't understand that you may have been in church situations where your, your reaction, your response is, man, I cannot be anything around this. And at the same time, in the same manner, that children who don't have uh, concerned and, and caring parents or parent and whatever in their life as well as a myriad of other adults and people in their life speaking love and value and compassion into their lives. They don't mature adequately or properly or uh, at the same rate, or they're, they're, if they, even as they mature, there are even more roadblocks on that path to maturity. In the same way that it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a church to raise a Christian, which means two things. Number one, we are responsible for you. Number two, you are responsible for us. You are your brother and your sister's keeper. I need you. Right? Like, I didn't mean to make this like my little like, oh, Sean's problems. Right? But I've been in in pastoral ministry. What year is it? It's for 10 years now. And I can tell you as a pastor, one of the hardest things is that people assume because you have seminary experience and because this is your vocation, that somehow you don't need other Christians calling out your your stuff, teaching you things that you didn't know about the faith before. Now as a husband and a father, loving your family and treating them with the same expectations as other families. Right? Like, people just miss that. And so what happens is, is and, I, and as I'm talking to more and more pastors, I'm getting this more and more, is that we become isolated. <laughs> isolated people trying to teach about community. Can you imagine? And so this text means that y'all are responsible for me as much as I'm responsible for you. Y'all are responsible for one another. <clears throat> right? We, you, without family, you do not mature. And we're family. And then that last component, while on mission. Everything that Jesus teaches, everything, is meant to push the Christian outward, not in. Jesus never like sits down with the disciples and says, "Um, hey, you know, the, the grass withers and the flower fades. The glory of the Lord is forever you know, don't worry about tomorrow, don't be anxious about to- tomorrow because today has enough problems of its own. Why don't you guys sit in circles of eight and talk about that? Not bumping Bible studies, but in all of the Gospels, how many times do you see Jesus doing that? No, none, none. Jesus works out the maturity of the disciples on mission. Right? Right? The Son of Man came to serve and not to be served. Now y'all go feed these people. Right? Here's the power of the coming kingdom. The kingdom of God is within you. Now y'all go and look. If they don't receive you, that's fine. Just kick the dust off your sandals and keep going to the next thing. All of the maturing, all of the things that Jesus gave the disciples to do together to mature were on, in the context of mission, going. Going. Right? Which means that you cannot properly mature as a Christian if you spend all of your time in your house, in church, and eating with Christians. Particularly Christians who don't need help. And don't know they need help, at least. We know we all need help, right? But y'all are just sitting around, not acknowledging the one bit of help that you need, which is the motivation to go serve somebody. And so as a church, we, we, that, is, that is what we do, right? Communities are about that. Sundays are facilitating that. Everything that we're doing is so that we as a people can be shaped by the Word in the context of family while on mission because we believe that mature Christians make a difference. Mature Christians reflect Jesus. I can't even tell you historically how many times to some mature Christians who had a biblical theology of ethnicity or a biblical theology of gender or a biblical theology of compassion and poverty, how many times in our history, situations that were complicated and made worse by the absence and the silence of the church would have been healed. Fam, let's not be those immature Christians who don't move into brokenness because we're so self-absorbed. And let's not be known for malice, envy, slander, deceit. Let's be known for love. Let's pray.